All right, let's get started this morning. We are not persevering in our perseverance study. Um, Caleb woke up this morning feeling quite ill and didn't think that was worth spreading around. And so we are going to look in the Psalms at Psalm 63. I saw this reference this week in the context of opposition. Uh, we'll study that in the Acts account this morning. So I flipped back over there and thought, well, let's work through this together. It'll be a good rehearsal for our practice of getting into the word more on a private scale. So as we think through getting into the word, kind of be thinking to yourself, how has that been going for 2024? Back in January, I guess it was, trying to decide if I would use the Bible reading plan I'd used the year before, which was like a five-day-a-week plan that got you through the Bible. Um, I just felt like I needed to give a little more attention to a little bit more of a kind of a topical study or at least book studies. And so wasn't using that plan, but was reading about Bible plans and came across one article that pretty strongly was saying Christians do not have to read the Bible every day. Um, you, you, it's hard to maybe find the exact language of the Bible that says this many minutes every day. And yet he also gave attention to the Psalms that speak of, you know, crying out on my bed and, and things that sounded like they, they could be maybe every day and... Uh, his point was a Bible reading schedule would be hard to argue every Christian needs to do it this way. Um, but he wasn't denying that every day our minds need to be exercising God's truth and applying it to our lives. And so my point isn't to say you need a Bible reading plan and do this and check it off and get somewhere. My point is, as the psalmist will be talking about here, we should be thirsting to know God and what he has told us about how to go about making it through every day. And so keep that in your mind just as a reminder, what am I doing to encounter God in the word? I don't know that most of us have much of a background in some kind of radical, uh, charismatic Pentecostalism where you think you're going to encounter God you know, in person or in a vision or in a dream. And so how are you going to encounter God, or we might say more intimately, know him, fellowship with him? How are you doing that? One of the ways we've used before, and I've used it now for, I guess, decades almost, was what we call the Swedish method. Simple series of questions that, as I define it, keeps my mind from getting lazy and just reading over words but now it's forcing me to analyze it. Um, it it'd be like a, a crime scene investigator who kind of knows what he's looking for. He knows the questions to ask, whereas the rest of us could walk by a car accident or something and just be like, wow, that's a mess. And we don't really know. We can't, we're not looking at how this may have happened and who would have been at fault and what do these skid marks show and the position of the cars and... We're not thinking that way. We're just thinking, oh, yeah, it was an accident. Well, our time in the Word can't be just, oh, yeah, that's true. 
or that was good, or I did my reading, we should have a few more questions that would lead us to observations so that we could know God and know the wisdom that he's offering to us in the word. So we're going to look at Psalm 63. We're going to read through this together. I have read through it once this morning, and then I just thought, you know, we're just going to tackle it together. (laughs) I'm not even going to try to come up with the organized thoughts. We'll just study it together as if this were our text for the day or for the coming week. Uh, It would be plenty for the week. It would be a nice piece for the day, uh, kind of depending on how you look at it. As we go through this, we're looking for, number one, something to see. It was a little icon of a light bulb that helps you think, ah, yes, I see that, or it caught my eye, or something stood out. Uh, Maybe it was a key word. Maybe it's a word that you're kind of keen on, or it's just loaded. It's a a big word that has a lot of motion or weight to it. Uh, Then we're looking at something to ask. That was our question mark. And the question mark icon reminds us that some things might be challenging. We might read them the first time and think, I have no idea how that goes together or what that means. Um, So we're asking questions about the difficulties in the text. Maybe we could ask simple questions like, why is that word between those phrases? What is that connecting word steering my mind to? How am I supposed to think? And at the end, it might just be questions of, I don't understand this phrase or this word or why God says he would do this. And it it just gives the crockpot something to cook. Uh, Those ideas are in there and and we can kind of trust the Lord for help. We can ask him for help, but the answer may not come right away. So something to see, something to ask, and then we have the icon of the arrow, pointing us forward, something to do. What am I supposed to do in response to this text? I'm supposed to be a doer of the word. So the common question of exegesis or taking stuff out of Scripture to present, the question is, so what? Read Psalm 63 and you could get to the end and without being antagonistic towards the text or dismissive of it, we could say, so what? What am I supposed to do with this? And that forces us to be thinking about what am I going to do? What do I need to change? How is my thinking wrong compared to this text? I I might not be thinking rightly about God. Is there a motivation that's offered to me? Is there some sin that stands out, a sin to be avoided? Maybe there's an example to be followed. Maybe there's something in this text that you're going to see the psalmist does and you don't do. And you should be asking, why not? So something to do. I should be able, most of the time when I study the Bible, to come away thinking, I might not understand everything, but I I think I could do this better. There's a few others that were added over the years. Picture of the open Bible, somewhere to look. What other verses come to mind? Maybe one of those key words I know from another text, and it might be helpful to think through that one because it helps me understand what's going on here. Uh, Just pull all of your Bible knowledge together to help you interpret the text here. The folded hands icon could be something to pray. If this were my 
kind of quiet couple of moments before a busy day. I read the psalm, kind of know there's something I could work on. So how do I pray to begin this day? Well, I could set the Bible totally aside and pray through some other ideas I have, which wouldn't be a bad thing. You might have some kind of list or daily couple of requests. But I would say, if you're every day praying for family or for your spouse or for needs of people you know, why not take the fresh opportunity to see what this text might do for them? How you might pray this text over them. And that leads us to the last icon, just a a smiley face, and it's someone to tell. Who else might need to hear this? This might have come to mind to pray for that person from this text. Why don't I just send them a text? And generally, if I do this, I don't need to come up with some creative thing I'm praying for them about. Just say, praying Psalm 63, whatever for you today. Maybe give them the verse too so they don't have to look it up. And suddenly, you know, you've done something that sounds hard. Tell somebody how you're praying for them. And it's like, well, I don't know what I'm really even asking for or how should I pray for them. You don't have to say that. Just point them to the word and said, I'm praying this text for you. So it, there's a lot that can be accomplished with just coming to the text intentionally. And if these tools help, a light bulb, question mark, an arrow, great. If there's some other way you're coming to the text intentionally, great. Um, but you might find it takes weeks or months or years even to, to settle into a routine with something as basic as this. So I'm going to read the text, and then you teach the lesson, all right? Something to see, something to ask, something to do, somewhere else to look, how you might pray, someone to tell. All right, Psalm 63, you might have some heading in the text, and then in the actual biblical language, there's this description in some of the Psalms. And so we have a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So David's wandering in the wilderness, and the Lord gives him this psalm that we still benefit from today. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Generally, we have 
couple of sections there as it flows. The primary division is in verse 9. After talking about his own heart condition, he then turns his attention to this opposition that he's facing, his cause for wandering and racing around through the wilderness. Not an unfamiliar psalm, likely. A little of everything uh, of the psalmist's flair of emotion from self and need to uh, almost that uh, imprecatory sound toward the end and the downfall of the wicked. Where Where do we start? What thoughts come to your mind as your eyes kind of followed along through Psalm 63? Verse 6. So, when he talks about in the watches of the night, uh, so I was kind of thinking, well, that's probably like couldn't sleep or something. Then I remember, wait a minute, back then there was watches on the wall or whatever all the time. So, I took away from that uh, redeeming the time. But in your, it's really boring being on watch. There's nothing going on 99% of the time. So it seemed like he was meditating, redeeming the time. So, But today, we don't really have that. We can fill it up with something else. But instead of filling it up, how am I using it to meditate on God? So how do you fill up the watches of the night, those times of either you have to be here uh, or you have the downtime? Uh, how are you filling that time? What is, what is your pursuit when you don't have anything else to pursue? Roy? Uh, those of us who are older, it is about the night. <laughs> and the awake times, they are more frequent and longer. And I've found in my own practice, even more than praying, which ends up in there, Choosing to delight in God has expanded things for me. And going from that into a little bit further, somewhere in here talks about thirsting for God like a guy out in the desert wanting to drink of water. And I'll have to be honest and I doubt I'm alone in saying I have never God that bad. So why is that? I mean, it can be a concern. Do I truly know him? But if I am his, do I know him enough to understand that his excellencies are truly satisfying? He talks about being satisfied with rich food. There is a hole in each one of us that longs for something to fill it. I've been told all my life that that's a God-shaped hole, but I've never been told how to fill it with God. But there is a satisfaction, I would claim, from this passage that comes straight from God and nowhere else but God. I'll stop talking. All right, a couple of the themes came out there. And again, you know, First reading through, it's not always going to be a, a pure exegesis in the sense of, I know exactly the whole theme and how it all goes together. Sometimes it's, we might say, a, a topical thought that is standing out. You can always, always kind of help 
situate that in the, in the passage, but don't be afraid of just thinking on thirst um, and then coming back. Okay, understanding that word, now I can look at the text and say, my soul thirsts for God. And so Roy's questioning is like, I don't know if I've ever done that. Uh, so there's a starting place. What would that look like? Um, is that why you get up and come on Sunday morning sometimes after a long week that you don't really feel like getting up and going? Or you could probably excuse almost legitimately not coming, and yet something about you wants to be there with God's people and in that context of worship. Uh, maybe there's little glimpses of thirst that you're not even recognizing, but you realize, oh, yeah, that's, that's what that is. Um, I know I need something. Uh, there are times you don't know you're thirsty. Uh, you're busy working or something, and then you suddenly realize your lips are dry, your mouth's dry, and you realize, I could probably drink a whole quart of water in one sitting. You just you didn't realize it. And there's a lot in there then that's, that's triggering us, like, wait a minute, um, what am I doing that's filling time? What if that time was used in hydrating, so to speak, spiritually? Um, what am I missing out on? And suddenly we're, we're realizing I, I might be you know, doing more damage and dehydrating myself spiritually than I even realize. Um, all right, what else? Yeah, John? I wouldn't consider this exegesis as far as my thought, developing the thought of the, the whole song. But when I read that first verse, oh God, you are my God, I started thinking on the blessing that we have of knowing God as our God. And Adam and Eve in the garden, they know God. So Abraham knew God. Moses knew God. It's almost like going to our Hebrew study. But uh, that blessing that we know, because we know the Lord, and that's because of His work in us. I mean, the whole creation testifies to who God is. And, uh, but until God works in us, we don't want to recognize it or don't appreciate it or just rebel against it. But I just meditate on the blessing of being able to say, Oh God, you are my God. Because that seems to be himself to us in a special way. So John didn't make it past the first phrase, all right? Uh, oh God, you are my God. How is that possible? What does that look like? How does it unfold in Scripture? He said Adam and Eve knew God in the garden. You know, Abraham knows God and is called a friend. Moses called to serve, but he, he needs to know who this is, and he needs a name. Who is he going to say sent him? Uh, and we have that very first personal name of God given. Um, so just that thought of knowing God, uh, what right do we have? Like, we think it's great when we know a celebrity, right? So you, you may have heard my kids talk about Creed Humphrey, the center for the chiefs living in our neighborhood. Uh, so, you know, they took Christmas goodies by and they see him outside once in a while. And, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, we, uh, we know Creed, you know. Well, no, we don't really. <laughs> we really don't. Uh, but it feels like, whoa, we're this inner circle. Uh, no, no tickets for the game or anything from him. So uh, 
So we, we like that idea, or I've met the President of the United States once, or you know, whatever your story might be. Uh, well, the psalmist is saying, God is his God. Like, how did that happen? Uh, how do we get invited into that kind of circle? So there's a lot just at the beginning of that that uh, is, is rich meditation. And so what if somebody read this and, you know, they're really discouraged or depressed because maybe it's a single who's not married and they feel like they're all alone, or maybe it's the holidays and there's no family to gather, or it's unbelieving family who hates your religion, and it's like, I have no place. I'm this true pilgrim. And they come across, and that's, that might be all they need to, to think on in that day. They don't need to read four chapters. Maybe another day they'll do that. But just knowing that God is their God. They belong. And, and that's secure by the steadfast promise of God. That's all they need. And, and that kind of moment of just thinking, what do these words mean? Why is the psalmist crying out that phrase? That's all they needed. Um, Everything else falling apart, chased in the wilderness, but God is my God. I'm going to start there, and maybe you should be doing that this week as well. All right, what else? Yeah, Paul. I was just looking at verse 8. It's kind of like the, the hinge on which it all kind of pivots there, but it's also kind of the summary in many ways of the whole psalm. psalm the, my soul clings to you, your right hand holds me. And I was just thinking about the, what, what do I do? My role in this is to claim, um, to, to hold tight to that desperation that is depicting of coming and clinging to God. And then but what does he do? His, his right hand, his hand of power, his arm of power upholds me. And from that was then looking at 9, 10, and 11 and kind of seeing even a bit there the contrast where those who those who are not upheld by God's right hand, those who are not clinging to God, what ultimately happens is that they they sink both in judgment, in the terror of godlessness, and all of these different things. So the only difference there is being upheld by the right hand of God. Just jump out at me. Yeah, it's a great transition verse, because if you were looking to summarize those first eight verses, I think my soul clings to you is a good summary. Um, and then you can see even in the English Bible, it's, it's just kind of a stark contrast, either a semicolon, a dash, I don't know what you might have in your text. My soul clings to you, and you think, oh no, like, what if I lose my grip? What if I get tired, or, or stop clinging, or stop desiring, or thirsting? because um, we, we emphasize that. We, we sing of clinging. Uh, you know, I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Or um, what else would we sing of? Not coming to my mind. But the reality is both are true, and, the, and they sit side by side without contradiction, um, but only in complement. I, I do cling. I thirst. I pursue. I seek. Um, some of those other words in there. But the reality is, at the same time, he, by his right hand, upholds me. And we sing of that. He will hold me fast. Um, even when I fear my faith will fail. 
or I could lose my hold, we sing in that song. Um, he upholds us. Uh, we hear that in the Old Testament, you know. We're trying to keep this covenant and be God's people and do all these things. But we need to remember his promises. And Moses said, underneath us are those everlasting arms. We're busy doing our thing and trying to get it right. But the reality is there's that sustaining, steadfast love of God. So both are true. We need to thirst and pursue and seek and cling But it's good to know that his right hand upholds me because when we live through verses 9, 10, and 11, sometimes it it feels like the pursuit isn't going to happen and the seeking is going to slow down and the thirst might just kill us and we're just not up for it. And the good news is, even when our faithfulness may falter, God's does not. Jonathan. Structure of the verses um, from one to five um, kind of has a before and after of my soul thirsts, and then verse five, my soul be satisfied. And the difference of what changed in the middle is looking at verse two, a powerful and glorious God who, verse three, loves us. And, and that's the difference. <coughs> looking to this glorious God and that takes us from a thirsty soul to being satisfied. So this is a really good help for everyone. Um, Jonathan's made a really good point. Even though the, the illustration changes a little from thirst to kind of appetite, hunger, it's good to see the psalmist crying out, I, I thirst in this dry and weary land, there's no water And then he's saying, I'm satisfied as with fat and rich food. So we could kind of, in our minds, draw a line between the desperate need and the overwhelming satisfaction. Um, Again, the picture changes a little, so we we might miss it, but it's really helpful to see uh, that incredible desire and then a full satisfaction. And as Jonathan said, then you can figure out what happened in between. I thought this guy was wasting away, and now he's saying he's sitting back and he couldn't eat another bite. The difference was that encounter with God. Um, And he remembers the sanctuary, uh, the power and glory of God on display. He remembers steadfast love, which abides and sustains Uh, beyond anything this life throws at us. And so he's turned to praise, uh, and he uses that word satisfaction. Um, So we're hitting on key words. Like, if you see the word thirst, that's a heavy word in the sense of it pictures a whole lot. And the picture there is one that would really make us think, wow, that's pretty intense. When we see the word satisfied, you know, and you're thinking post-Thanksgiving meal, or something, you realize, oh, yeah, that that word is heavy, pun intended. Um, It's like going through the buffet, you know, or eating out on Sunday, and you go home stuffed, and it's like, that word means something to us. We get that. And the psalmist is using those kind of big, heavy words in a physical illustration to help us grasp these spiritual ideas. Um, All right, what else? Yeah. As we started, I've been 
the Holy Spirit for those who seek him out. We've seen how poor we are and we bless the Holy Spirit for the kingdom of heaven. And then his remark goes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So a couple of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, that New Testament language kind of matches the psalmist here, hungering and thirsting for God. And, and the promise that will come with the filling. And so maybe you're in the thirsty stage. Well, recognize the promise of God is that, that ultimately leads to satisfaction. Not, not because the circumstance goes away and you're out of the barren wilderness and you're not being hounded or chased, but because, as Jonathan mentioned, of that encounter with God himself. So the promise is there that those who hunger and thirst will be satisfied. Uh, so with thinking of somewhere else to look, read through those Beatitudes and see the condition of that kingdom citizen and the benefit of being one of those kingdom people. Good. What else, Daniel? Uh, our small group read So Psalm 3, uh, you could reference if, if this theme is kind of resonating with you, uh, you'll see similar ideas in Psalm 3 where it's wilderness wandering. Um, and frankly, you know, I'm not saying like your wilderness wandering is going to be the worst season of your life ever. Uh, literally, it could be a, a really bad day. Um, and the wilderness wandering themes of the Psalms are going to be helpful to you. Uh, Bear in mind, while there is praise and, and singing in this psalm, uh, it's in that context of what we would think of more under the label of lament, um, of hardship, of trial, of longing. Um, and just remember, there is more lament than anything else in the psalms. So we think the psalms would be all about praise. More psalms are lament than praise. And it just reminds us that God meets us right here in that suffering, but it's always with this hope that I can find the way through the valley of the shadow. Uh, his steadfast love is better than life. All right, what else? Yeah, Alan. Uh, looking at verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Uh, a couple of things. See, coming from this uh, thirstiness into this satisfaction, 
causes the reaction. His lips praise him, and then after he's satisfied, my lips, my mouth will praise you before the lips. Uh, kind of piggybacking off the tangent too, like looking back at Psalm 4, 63 verse 3, your steadfast love is better than life. Like it's always easy to see God's goodness and faithfulness, but life's really terrible, and we can see how that really lifts us up, but how much more so when life is going really well and functioning at a high level. Psalm 4, verse 7 says, You put more joy in my heart than they have when they're bringing their wine down. Uh, so, just looking at that steadfastness, that same level of consistency we've got all the way through positive action, it's that much better than people Yeah, to think of our encounter with God and, and what that produces then in us um, is helpful for our minds. So, when we see faithfulness, mercy, covenant love, however it unfolds there in your text, uh, look and see what that does to the one who was lamenting, the one who's being chased, the one who's burdened, um, and start like making that connection. When they encounter this, this is the response. Um, how, how do people sing in songs of praise, like in the valley of the shadow of death? Well, the psalmist here is telling us he's still in the wilderness, but because of this understanding of the steadfast love of God, he's led to praise, to singing. Um, that's helpful for us because it shows us there is a way through, uh, maybe at times even out of um, that kind of pit we find ourselves in. Um, and we have a map now. We know where to go. What else? Yeah, Lorraine? Um, this kind of made me think of um, back in Genesis 16 when um, Hagar uh, saw the Lord and um, she says um, you, you are El Roy for she said in this place I actually see the one who sees me and she was in the wilderness but she was by a well I think the well is kind of a mm. picture of the source of the water there. So Genesis 16, uh, roughly there. Um, Genesis 16, the story of Hagar, kind of out in the wilderness, thinks she's going to die, and she encounters God. God reveals one of his names, the God who sees. Um, and maybe there's something there, even because of, the wilderness, and she's by a well, uh, as just that reminder of that, we, we should know as Christians where we need to go when we are exhausted, when we're thirsty, when we're needy, when we're troubled, and remembering that we're coming to the God who sees, who knows our condition. All right, yeah, Daniel. I thought it was interesting that it doesn't say the evil doers in the last in verse nine. It doesn't say the evil ones. It just says for those who seek my life, um, to destroy my life rather. Um, there doesn't seem to be this like they're evil doers, but all of a sudden there is a contrast to say that they're somehow wrong, in this. and they're so wrong that they won't even get a proper burial. They'll for for dogs. But it doesn't exactly say. Other than the power of the sword, whose sword that will be that 
destroys this but still lists back to God and can't see the verse 11 where he says but the king shall rejoice in God all the swear by him shall call so the mouths are wider than the stop so there's even this this line that's going on as well and it's, it seems like there's a lot going on in the last two verses that I didn't see on first yeah, there seems to be a confidence he's on the right side. And so if they're after him, you know, they're going to have to take it up with the Lord. And then, of course, you know, the, we, we can resonate with a sense of justice, with that's wrong and longing for God to make it right. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. Um, we, we should just remember, at least in coming across Psalms, praying against enemies in harsh ways that, our feeling of justice may reflect the image of God, but our expression of how that justice is meted out may not always be as pure as God's. Um, so bear that in mind. Um, but no, like when he says they will be a portion for jackals, he might be fed up with them, but we'll see that in the Kings and Chronicles, how certain of those evil rulers are, you know, thrown down off a wall and the dogs came and finished them off or licked up Jezebel's blood and it's kind of like, whoa, that's kind of nasty. And the whole point is the, the nastiness of it is fleshing out, literally, um, the way Proverbs puts so simply, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man and the end thereof is the ways of death or ruin. And it's really just driving home that point in a vivid picture like, you can't sin and win. Like, it doesn't work. Um, there is one way to go, and it's God's way. And um, so whether they're a portion for the jackals or given over to the sword, uh, going down to the depths of the earth, all, all that language is, is, like, biblically true and at times picturesque. But it shows us God is just, and sin must be accounted for. And if anything, it kind of opens up the door to the gospel. Like, well, how do you avoid that? And if we're evildoers, don't we all deserve this? And the answer is yes. So we need saving. We need rescuing. Uh, and that's done through the promised Messiah to come. A few more before we wrap up. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's interesting as you go through you know, all the thirsting, you know, looking to God, being satisfied, all that, you sort of, you draw out God's character through it, right? Verse 3 talks about how he loves us. Verse 7 talks about how he helps us and protects us. Verse 8 talks about how he sustains us. And then in verse 10, how he provides justice that we can rely on. And so all that is, it's, it all turns back to God. It's all about God. Um, so we can sort of look at the why or the reason for, this, for David producing this song that just keeps coming back to God and this is who God is, this is who God is yeah. and so it's a good reminder for us to remind ourselves who God is as we live day to day and why we have hope in Christ so if you're approaching this and you were just starting with the light bulb and maybe one of the questions about what to see would be like do you see anything about the character of God it's a good question for the light bulb category well, Dave listed just like three or four verses there where there's something said clearly about what God does. So exegesis would mean you're, you're taking out of the text what's there, 
homiletics would be, okay, how do you structure this into an outline to actually teach somebody? And you can see from just asking about the character of God how that would flow pretty easily where you could teach a Sunday school class or a ladies' study. Um, and you'd sound like a real expert from Psalm 63, and how did they get that? You know, how did they get that, you know, God does this and God does that and God does this for us and this for us and structure this beautiful little outline about the character of God when really all you did was answer the question, what do I see in this text about God's character? Um, so I understand God may not have called you to preach and hasn't maybe given you that particular gift, but as a Christian, you can read the Bible and if you're thinking, you could teach a class or you could present an idea to someone or you could just share with a friend, man, I just saw the character of God doing this, this, and this for us. It's just amazing that in one psalm, he, he, he boasts on himself that much and encouraged somebody. So these little questions really are helpful because when Dave said verse 3, verse 8, verse 9, verse 11, that wasn't some like, supernatural insight. He's literally just reading the Bible and saying, God said he does this for us and he does this. And so I say, be encouraged. Like you can read and study your Bible and with a little help from simple tools like questions to ask, you're going to get somewhere. Uh, You're going to make some progress. All right. One or two more before we go. The other year, it's probably... 2023, Pastors Fellowship I go to, our theme was kind of an internal theme of worship. Um, and so they'll, they'll have a couple of pastors present on a topic and have like feedback and analysis of the idea. Um, I was charged with the task of using both the regulative principle, which is does the Bible specifically say something to do in worship, uh, and the normative principle, which means Uh, does the Bible forbid that in any way in worship? Using those principles, how does physical expression uh, fit in the context of public worship? So kind of to think through all the verses that talk about physical expression in worship, some of them like this text may be classified as more private because we don't see them in the congregation or among the people, but other texts may Uh, So in verse 4, we have, I will bless you as long as I live. The parallel to that in Hebrew poetry is, I, in your name, I will lift up my hands. And so that verse was kind of included in the broad analysis of what does physical expression mean in public worship? Some of that is analyzing what does physical expression mean in human communication, you know, uh, in our culture, in other cultures, and then you see there are common threads in culture, uh, how the body responds in physical ways to good, bad, and ugly, I suppose. Um, and that's why you could be sitting quietly on your couch as the quarterback drops back to throw, and when it goes 50 yards through the air and the receiver catches it and it's a touchdown and your team wins the Super Bowl, you're not sitting quietly on the couch anymore. You know, you're throwing your arms up in the air and you're like, why did you just do that? Like, what did your arms in the air mean? Like, why didn't you fall flat on the floor or something? Like, 
um, do something else, but it's pretty universal. There's moments where we do that. Or, you know, why do we rush to hug somebody in the family when they say, we're having a baby? And you're like, ah! You attack them. Why do you attack people when they say they're having a child, right? Our bodies just respond. Why do you get goosebumps, like when something dramatic happens, or, or even in the song service, or why is your foot tapping? Like, our bodies respond. What is that? What's going on? All that comes into play when you read these texts, like, I will, I will lift up my hands. Well, why? What context do I express myself physically, and what context do I not? Um, so are there, are there grounds for being commanded to express ourselves physically? Or, that's the regulative pr- principle, or does the Bible forbid it in any way? Meaning, it, if it doesn't, well, is there room for it? Um, those are questions we should think through, both privately and publicly. Publicly, it comes with some other kind of boundaries of not being a distraction to others, but nor should I, on my side of it, be distracted by somebody else. There's that togetherness in worship that means it's not about you. You're not here to shine We're supposed to make God shine, but what physically contributes to that? Privately in my worship, is there something I should be doing? You know how much posture is in the matter of prayer? We we treat prayer too casually, I'm afraid. And and if we don't understand the posture of the Bible, you you might not ever find a time where you're supposed to sit casually and just kind of pray if you happen to think of something. Maybe something about thirsting is the psalmist sometimes prostrate on the ground. Maybe that communicates something about begging God to save unsaved relatives or that wretched child in your own house. Maybe there's something there. Maybe, maybe we would be led to understanding thirst if we didn't always think dignified. I'm going to be this presentable worshiper. So consider even just a text that says, lifting up my hands. Maybe that goes along with thirsting. Maybe that goes along with desperation. Maybe that goes along with, I know my only hope is whatever. And so if you see someone lifting up their hands in worship, think, well, praise the Lord. Maybe, maybe that thirst will be satisfied. Maybe, they're, maybe they've tasted the goodness of the Lord and they're, they're recognizing this is where it comes from. I need These are the ideas that need to shape our minds, not, well, I don't know if I should do that, or I don't know. No, come back to Scripture and think, wait a minute. What do thirsty people look like? What do they do? What does that look like in the body in our response to our good God? Psalm 63, we've kind of jumped around in it. Maybe you can take it this week and and comb through it a little better and make it yours. Um, And if not that text, do it somewhere. And if not every day, uh, take something from this psalm and maybe think it through the week. Master it. Become an expert on Psalm 63 by your own life experience and study. Yeah. Maybe these thirsty wilderness wanderings actually... Uh, our God's plan to make sure that with, with undistracted vision, we will see his power and glory. Um, that's good. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, 
without even any preparation, uh, the body here has, has contributed to a whole buffet of truth that is ours for the using uh, to minister to our own hearts, to, to uh, bind up our wounds and our discouragements and to point us in a direction for satisfaction. Meet each one in their need through this psalm uh, that reveals your character. Uh, help us this week as we uh, dive into the busyness. Uh, there may be hours or days or perhaps the whole season that seems to be wilderness wandering. Uh, make yourself known to us and lead us to the singing, to the rejoicing, to the satisfaction to the realization that we can trust you to provide for us and to take care of all the injustice that seems to work against us. Thank you for your word and its power. Uh, Bring it to bear in our lives this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.